We are in part three, and this is hot. <laughs> we are in part three of the series called Character. We're going to be looking at the character attributes of God. We're looking at four. There are many, many others as, as well, but the four we're looking at uh, was kindness, the first one, love last week. Today we're looking at graciousness, uh, and then next week, God's faithfulness. Now, why would we do this? We do this because God has given us um, minds, and sometimes, by the way, in Scripture, you can see an interplay, an interchange between the word heart and mind, or even the word soul and mind, and when we move our minds by our own choice and focus on God, what is it we're focusing on? And as we focus on God, in his attributes, something takes place. The thing that takes place is more than simply knowing more about God. What takes place is you're slowly getting to know God himself. And when you do this over and over again as a habitual practice of setting your mind, your heart, your soul in God's direction, focusing on who he is, something takes place where you begin to not only understand his character, a transfer takes place and a transformation takes place where you begin to live out those communicable attributes, those characteristics of God that he has created us for to embody, to reflect who God is. That's a mouthful, but I simply want to illustrate this truth with a quote. With just the four uh, attributes that we're studying so far, how does this work? As we personally experience God as kind, we will become more kind like him. Notice I didn't say, as you personally understand God to be kind, that's only one step. When you focus on his kindness and develop a habit of focusing on his kindness and his kindness rubs off on you, you're literally experiencing his kindness. So you're experiencing the goodness of God in such a way that you become good like God. There is a proximity with him in this worshipful mind-setting activity as you do this. As we personally experience God as loving, we become more loving like him. As we personally experience God as gracious, we become more gracious like him. And as we personally experience God as faithful, we become more faithful like him. So, today together we're going to go through a little exercise of setting our minds on the character of God, specifically the attribute of his graciousness. And we're going to spend some time camping out on this concept with not the idea of knowing this about God, but with the idea of beginning to experience it from him. So let's experience God together as we set our minds in his direction. That's my hope for today. Fastest way to simply put uh, this attribute before you as an attribute of God is to go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, which reads, The Lord passed in front of him, that is, passed in front of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Now, 
Um, I'm really excited about today, really nervous about today as well, because I'm trying something a little different for me. It's going to feel a little different from you if you have been with us for a while. And um, I don't know if I can pull it off. But what I'm going to do is give us the context here of this verse. And I want to do it a little bit like this. I'm going to tell you... Uh, by clip, by clip, by clip, the whole Mount Sinai movie, okay? But in a sense, it's like I'm giving you the trailer for this movie by just giving you clip, by clip, by clip, because we're going to cover Exodus 19 through Exodus 34, and you're all smiling like, good luck with that. 16 chapters of Exodus in 30 minutes. Yeah, that's why I'm nervous but it's also a little bit why I'm excited about this because the context is what makes this verse powerful. So here's where we're going with this. This verse is going to remain on the screen for the rest of the message almost, and you're going to get antsy because you want to fill in those blanks. We're not going to fill in those blanks until about three minutes left of the sermon. Okay, so I just tell you that in advance. You're going to think I forgot all about you, but no. We're going to focus on God and who God is as he reveals himself in a relational way, that's how he's always revealed himself, in a relational way so that we can get to know him. And we're going to focus specifically on Mount Sinai in this context from Exodus 19 through uh, chapter 34. In this section, Moses, the leader of the people group that God miraculously moved out of Egypt He ascends to Mount Sinai, the top where God calls him to meet with him seven times through this section. It gets really confusing when you're just reading through. Where is he? Is he up there? Is he down here? Is he up there? Is he down here? But I just want to let you know in advance, what's taking place is he's functioning as a mediator and a prophet where he represents God to the people, hears from God, tells God what God says to tell them, and then goes and tells God what the people said back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But then God had this plan in this time frame at Mount Sinai to break the pattern. Up until this point, and it's been, depending on the scholar you look at, it's been three months, or in my opinion, two months to the day from their exit out of Egypt. They arrive at Mount Sinai, precisely the place where God told Moses that they're going to meet. They're here now, and Moses Now, hears from God, and he hears what God is going to do. He's going to do a setup for breaking the pattern of just being the mediator. God himself is going to come down and reveal himself with audio visual in such a way that these people will never forget how he's going to establish a covenant with them and make them his covenant people. They're going to be his nation, his prized possession, And he's going to give them what we call the Ten Commandments, which is really more like their national constitution. They're going to receive many, many more commandments, but it's like their national constitution that he's going to give them. But he's going to do it personally. They're going to hear it audibly. And there's going to be audio and visual effects so that they will be tested, they will be instructed, and they will never forget. That was God's plan. So, 
Exodus 19 sets all of that up. This is the first ascent to the mountain. And God says, you're going to tell the people this, you're going to tell the people this. And by the time we get to, through the Exodus 19, uh, then he says, now give them three days. He's already gone up and up back a couple times. Now give them three days to prepare because I'm coming down. And in the three days to prepare, he tells them specifically what they're supposed to do. And even just one piece of what they're supposed to do, wash their clothes, would have taken, everybody's panicked. How do you wash your clothes? We've not washed our clothes in two months. And, and we're in the desert. And so we have just this stream of water which Moses has provided. We've got to wash our clothes. Even that by itself is a panic. But they have to wash their clothes, wash their hearts, wash their souls, consecrate themselves, prepare, because God is going to meet with them. And then we get to Exodus 20. 19 sets it up. It's not just a, a mountain and not just clouds in a mountain. It is, let me just give you a few of the audiovisual effects. There is thunder. There is lightning. There's a dense cloud. There's a loud blast from a ram's horn that gets louder and louder and louder that God is coming down. And then there's smoke and the, the Lord comes down in fire. Now, some people are thinking, oh, so Mount Sinai is erupting like a volcano. Listen, everything that takes place here cannot be explained by volca volcano erupting. Not in the least, okay? And what takes place then is that in chapter 20, God's voice declares this 10-statement constitution before the people audibly. A, a little bit uh, beforehand, they had heard Moses speaking to God audibly, sort of authenticating him as the prophet mediator, and Moses speaks to God audibly, and all the people are uh, surrounding and listening, and God thunders his answer, and they hear his thunder, and they're, they're like, Witnesses of a conversation between prophet and God, and they're just, whoa. And that's nothing compared to now that God himself comes down, there's no mediator. And God is speaking directly to them. In fact, the response of the people is this in 24. Well, uh, let's, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The people are terrified. And while the people stand at a distance outside the boundaries, Moses enters the darkness where God was. So uh, this is in the middle of the back and forth. <laughs> okay, he enters into the darkness and then uh, he receives more of the commandments besides the 10. Um, just to let you know what, what the instructions are, it takes up chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, while Moses is in the mountain, all these instructions he gets from God, and he goes down and tells them all these instructions. Then at chapter 24, verse 3, we read this, Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. So, I got to catch up to myself here going backwards now. I skipped a part. There was a piece in there out of the terror of what they're listening to, the terror of what they're visualizing, the horror that God is so overwhelmingly powerful that they're going to die. They ask Moses, don't, don't let God talk to us anymore. You be our mediator. You go talk to him, and then you tell us what he says. We can handle that. And from this point forward, that's what takes place. But can you imagine the indelible memory 
of hearing the 10 statements from God himself. By the way, the focus of our attention for right now is the second statement. You will never, ever, don't ever make an idol of me. Okay? They came out of Egypt where that was the main, main deal in every religion in Egypt. Idols, idols, idols. God went to great pains to show that he is stronger than any other God. He is the only God, and don't make an idol of me because anytime you make an idol, you're going to reduce me to less than I am. Never, never, ever make an idol. Okay, okay, we will obey all your commands, they all say. And that happens repeatedly before this statement. So Moses then is going to take them through a covenant ceremony. He is uh, giving them instructions he woke up early after spending the night writing down all of those instructions on a scroll of the covenant, and that's chapter 24, verse 4. He then makes an earthen altar, and that's chapter 24, verse 5. If you want to, you can kind of follow this. If, if you don't want to, that's okay. I'm just giving you the trailer. Um, as they offer the animal sacrifices, they capture the blood from the animal. Half of it they capture and hold for one use. The other half they capture and hold for another use. The first use was after the burnt offering or before. I'm not quite sure. I'm, my memory is too small for all of this. Um, splattered the blood on the altar with the first half of the blood. The second half of the blood after the burnt offering ceremony and after the reading of the covenant scroll... This is initiating the covenant where they've said yes. Now they're ratifying this covenant as an official ceremony like I do is an official ceremony to, called getting married. You make an official ceremony to be in covenant together. This is the nation in an official ceremony making a covenant with God to say we will be your nation. Yes, we follow these are the stipulations. We say yes. And then to seal it, I'm glad that we don't do ceremonies this way. They take the hyssop branches and they take all the blood or, and they splatter the rest of the blood of all the sacrifice all over the people. <laughs> and, and then the people are like, like, they get it. If we don't adhere to this, our destiny is that animal's destiny. The blood <laughs> is our uh, destiny. Death. But that's the covenant ceremony. Exodus 24, 8 reads, Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. In verse 12, 24, 12, God calls Moses back up Sinai to receive stone tablets to make official his written instructions. And God cuts it out of stone, inscribes it on the stone, and then he keeps giving instructions. That's Exodus chapter 25 all the way through chapter 32. Meanwhile, back at the base of Sinai, back at base camp, the people looking up at the inferno assume 40 days later, Moses must have been blitzed by God. I could see how that would happen. And they come up to Aaron and they ask Aaron to make them an idol to get them out of here. We need a God to follow. We don't even have Moses. We don't even know what has happened to this guy. 
And Aaron says, okay. That's loosely translated. And he then instructs him, okay, all the gold that you that came to you by way of spoils and plunder from Egypt, when they said, get out of here, get out of here, and gave you all the gold earrings and all that, bring me all the gold earrings and all that, and he makes a molten image over a, a sculpture, and out, this is Aaron's words, and out came this calf. And they begin to do pagan worship, the way they've seen it in Egypt, bowing down to this idol, And it makes me just go, what part of never, ever, ever do this do you not understand? If you've been a parent, you get that emotion, (laughs) right? What part of no do you not get? But we want to ask that question, but should we? Every single one of us has done the same thing. We've known what God wants. Or if you're not sure of this God, we've known what is the right thing to do and we've done precisely what we know is not the right thing to do. Everybody who's honest knows they've done this. I mean, even if you're so godless, you just simply say, have you done everything you know to do to be the best man you can be? The answer is no. Honestly. And if you believe that you have, sin has deceived you, you have not. Interestingly, after this is taking place at the base camp, God is just speaking to Moses instruction after instruction, chapter after chapter. He interrupts himself. He'll come back to what he was instructing on later. He interrupts himself to tell Moses, uh, we have a problem. Down below, they've broken covenant. They're in rebellion. Full-blown rebellion. He just describes the whole thing, and Moses is shell-shocked. He just doesn't even know what to think or what to do. We read this, Exodus. Uh, How much should I read? I'm running out of time here. I'm just going to read the front end of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man you who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Then at verse 34 is when Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And they're looking at a man-made, crafted, artistic piece of gold. And then meanwhile, back up on Mount Sinai, God interrupts, and in verse 9 through 10, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger can burn against them, and I can destroy them. What? Jim, I thought you were talking about God is gracious. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Huge puzzle here in the story. And we have to ask ourselves, is this a test? What is going on here? What's really interesting is Exodus 32, 11 through 12. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, he brought them out 
with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. This is Moses' prayer. It sounds like a conversation. Well, hello. When you are talking with God, it's called prayer. It is a conversation. And it's a two-way conversation between Moses and God. And he's praying this based on God's character. And his whole motivation is to protect the reputation of God. Now, if I was in his shoes, I'd go, cool. You're going to make a great nation out of me? More? Okay. It's like, no, no ego was in this. Moses has spent enough time with God and observing God's character and interacting with God's holiness and his character that he's more concerned about God's reputation and knows on what basis to speak to God on behalf of the people that he is mediating before God. And he's requesting that he not destroy these people. And that's why I think this is a test for Moses. But it's more than that as we keep reading. Because we read another shocking statement from Moses. It's a shocking prayer. Verse 32, chapter 32. Forgive them. If not, blot me out of your book. I know I would never pray that. I can't even imagine anybody praying that. But Moses has spent so much time in the presence of God. The character of God's graciousness is literally taking over. We know that by the end of chapter 34, he doesn't know this. He can't see it, but the people see it. When he comes down from his long-term experience with God, he's glowing with the character of God. I think what's taking place here is the Spirit of God is moving Moses to speak words that he doesn't even understand what he's saying and the implication of what he's saying. He just has a heart for mediating on behalf of God's people and a heart for God's reputation and God's character. And he says this. And what's really a huge puzzle to me, then we read, and this is the hinge point when God relents. He changes from supposedly changes from his determination to obliterate the people who are in rebellion to be gracious. And then Moses continues this prayer and asks God to now show his character and show who he is and let him see and know him even more. And God has to set some parameters on that. So what is going on here? Here's the best thing I can do uh, to try to explain, and I hope it works for you because it's like, whoa, it's like mind-blowing for me. Moses doesn't really get what's going on, but he's been affected by the character of God to the degree that he's willing to do something at his own expense for the, those unmerited, rebellious brothers and sisters of his. This is Moses' perspective. From God's perspective, what's taking place is he's setting up the stage for the real movie, and this is just the dress rehearsal. We see the stand-in for Jesus, which is Moses. It's like setting up the furniture, and the cameras are all set, the lights are all set, and all the people are just watching the set, but the main actor is not in position yet. Moses is just stepping in place of the main actor, 
And he's gonna take that position until God says action. And Moses is standing in the position which Jesus himself will stand in when God says, lights, camera, action, let's roll. Here is the pre-story before the real story where God literally is able to be gracious only because of the actions of Jesus. And all of this through the Spirit's influence because God is setting up, is beginning to infiltrate the thinking and psyche and feelings and experiences of Moses to such a degree that he is acting like Jesus in graciousness, pleading on behalf of God and pleading on behalf of the people. And Jesus is going to come. And the real story takes place and it's the only story that makes it possible for a holy God to live in connection with an unholy, rebellious people. And only when he says, action, cameras are rolling. Moses is out of position. Jesus is in position. And Jesus interceding on behalf of God for the people and on behalf of people for God, he hangs in the balance and literally allows his name to be wiped out. He absorbs all of our sins into himself and releases us from guilt. Why? Because God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. This is the context of God's declared truth about himself. It doesn't do me a whole lot of good to hear people declare truths about themselves if I can't see it to be true in their life. God shows it to be true and then says it so you get it. And we get it. We have a few minutes remaining. Are you ready to fill in some blanks? What does it mean to be gracious? Point number one, gracious people give grace to people. Gracious people give grace to people. Point number two, giving grace is giving unmerited favor. Giving grace is giving unmerited favor. Jesus taught us to be gracious like God his Father is gracious. He didn't use technical words to do it. He didn't even use the word gracious. He made it so clear it was uncomfortable. Let me read for you what he said. Matthew 5, 43 through 45 reads, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. Now that's gracious. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's gracious. Why don't you be like your father? This is uncomfortable. This is difficult. Enemies do not deserve our favor. So why give them favor? Because God gave us unmerited favor. Here's a quote. As God is gracious toward us who are undeserving, 
We are to be gracious to the undeserving. Period. If you're not gracious to the undeserving, have you really received grace and understand that you yourself are undeserving? It is positively wonderful to experience God's character personally where you receive grace and you know you don't deserve it and you just are so glad you have it. How does anyone take steps toward this transfer of grace? Let me suggest this to you on the screen. As we fill ourselves with his thoughts, our thoughts are affected. As we fill ourselves with his love, our love is affected. As we fill ourselves with the fuel of his grace in its many forms, we become more gracious like him. I want to give you another practical definition of gracious. It's one that's hard to wiggle out of. And here's the practical definition. Point number three, do what is best for the other person. Do what is best for the other person. This is hard. We cannot do it on our own. But let me give you a practice to conclude with, an exercise that will help us become more gracious more often. You don't have to write this down if you have the app, events app, and it's right there at the bottom of the talk it over outline, or if you have the paper outline, flip it over, and it says talk it over. The very bottom is a practice um, statement. Here's a practice for you on the screen. In daily prayer, worshipfully express your gratitude to God for his love and grace. Now, this make this a habit. You won't experience the goodness of God if you don't develop the habits of Jesus. What I just said there was really profound. Okay? You won't experience the goodness of God until you develop the habits of Jesus. You'll know about the goodness of God, but you won't be feeling it. You won't be experiencing it until you develop these habits, the path, the lifestyle. Jesus calls the way. The whole Christian movement was called the way of Jesus. Walk in it. Then you'll experience the goodness of God. So in daily worshipful, uh, daily prayer, worshipfully express your gratitude to God for his love and grace. Verbally list the ways that come to mind as you make it a developed habit to focus on what he has graciously given you you will be filled to overflowing and blessed to be a blessing to others. And 20 seconds to pray. (laughs) Would you pray with me? Lord God, this is an amazing reality, the real story you've set before us. You've staged it. You prepared for it. You help us understand it. Grace only makes sense when we understand your holiness and justice. Grace can only come to us when we understand what Jesus has done for us. Pictured in a small way through the temple sacrificial system, which was really a picture of Jesus too, in the old covenant. Lord God, I thank you for the new covenant we are in. In the blood of Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your Savior, your saving actions, 
to set us free, to set within us the Spirit of God, to overflow with your goodness and graciousness. Fill us up to overflowing. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a prayer team to the left of the stage. If you need prayer, if you need to take steps towards Jesus, you can start there. If you need to just have prayer for something taking place in your life, go over and ask for prayer. God is at work here. See you next week.